0: As Hurricane Katrina headed towards New Orleans, the staff at Memorial Medical Center prepared as they always had through countless other hurricanes, not knowing the horror that lie ahead. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and we'll be talking with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Dr. Sherry Fink on her amazing new book, Five Days at Memorial. Sherry, welcome to the program.
1: It's great to be here.
0: So can you tell me the kind of the background on Memorial Medical Center?
1: Memorial Medical Center was a venerable community hospital. It had been built in 1926 in New Orleans, and it was originally a Baptist hospital that was later purchased by the hospital chain Pennant, which was um, at the time of the storm based in Texas. And it really was a place where people went for storms that often threatened New Orleans, even though it was situated, like most of New Orleans, in a bowl below sea level. It was actually about three feet below sea level. And so when the storm threatened, Uh, about 2,000 people took shelter in it. So that was about 250 patients, but there were staff members, there were the uh, family members of not only patients but also staff who who were allowed to bring them with them, and there were even pets because when people evacuate for a hurricane, sometimes they want to make sure that their pets were safe. And so this building had uh, many, many, many people inside of it, many beings inside of it when the storm threatened.
0: It, it sounded like it was just standard operating procedure, just another hurricane that's coming and, you know, we're going to hunker down and, and we're going to be fine.
1: That's right. And when the predictions for the storm grew pretty serious, the, the city authorities decided to exempt hospitals and nursing homes, well, I believe hospitals, uh, they, they decided to exempt the hospitals from evacuating, figuring that they would need to be operational in case people who couldn't evacuate the city um, you know, needed help after the disaster. But this was done even though The local authorities knew because they had had some close calls, they knew that most of those hospitals had backup power systems that were vulnerable to flooding in case there was a severe flood. They had actually done an analysis of this a few years prior, and they knew that most of the hospitals in the city couldn't withstand flooding. And that was true of this hospital, too. In fact, just a year before the storm, they had done an analysis, and the head of plant operations had written a memo saying that. Even with, I think it was something like four feet of flooding, that the majority of the hospital's backup power could be compromised. So there was a vulnerability here that that people were aware of.
0: And what was Life Care? It was kind of a rehab hospital within a hospital.
1: It was a long-term acute care hospital within a hospital. It was a least separately owned facility that served mainly uh, people who who required extended acute care services. So these would be a a lot of uh, much older patients, patients with multiple medical problems, and the majority of the patients in the hospital building who relied on ventilators to breathe were in this life care unit. They had about 55 patients there as the storm approached.
0: So who were some of the physicians that were the players through this crisis?
1: A lot of physicians stayed for the storm, even though they didn't have to. In fact, some people said it was more physicians than they had ever remembered because the storm was kind of gearing up on a weekend. And of course, the physicians wanted to be nearby to help patients. And it's also kind of nice not to have to join the long lines for evacuating the city. Anybody who's ever had to do that in New Orleans knows that getting out and then back into the city when there's an evacuation is difficult. So a lot of them, you know, basically holed up in their offices, which were part of this big hospital complex. And so there were surgeons, there were uh, internists, there were people who, uh, you know, radiologists, pathologists, the the whole gamut of physicians at that point that were helping out and seeing patients. They, They actually, because, you know, the storm was quite severe and communications had been cut off pretty you know, it wasn't very easy to communicate, that they divided the hospital up and assigned physicians to cover each ward and make sure that, you know, if somebody's doctor couldn't be reached, at least there'd be a physician who the nurses could call for orders.
0: So what were the plans to evacuate these 250 patients and the 1,700 members of the staff and their families?
1: So the storm hit early hours of Monday morning. As I said, things looked pretty good. But then on Tuesday morning, a day later, was when water started rising, and people started getting these confusing messages about what was happening in the city, and that's when the levees were failing. And that's what really sent things into uh, a real crisis, because as I said, the hospital's top administrators knew that there was this vulnerability, or at least some of them did, knew that the hospital could lose all power if flooding reach a certain level. So that's when they made the decision to evacuate as the waters were rising and as they feared that there might only be hours left that they would have power. And you just just imagine everything that runs on power these days in a hospital it's almost unimaginable even since we've had Katrina you know i still speak with with hospital officials who who just really can't even contemplate what that would mean and how you would prepare for just a total loss of power so that was when a big decision had to be made at first it didn't seem like such a big decision but who do you start rescuing first so you've got these 250 patients 2000 people some helicopters started to arrive on this uh, somewhat rickety helipad that hadn't been used in many years, but that the hospital had invested in uh, in the structure, at least, so it didn't fall down. Uh, Helicopters arrived, but they were pretty small, and they could take maybe one or two patients at a time. So the question became, who do you get out first when you have only perhaps a few hours left with power? And so I, I want all the listeners to think about what if you were faced with that choice, and how would you make it, and who would you choose? Um, in this case, a, a small group of doctors got together, really ad hoc, and because there, there hadn't been a, a plan for this exact crisis, uh, despite voluminous, you know, paper plans for disasters. And so they, they basically just quickly made a decision that they felt was right. They decided to get the, the babies out. They were NICU babies. They also wanted to get the uh, newborns and pregnant mothers out, as well as ICU patients and they started to do this by helicopter, and then also they got some ambulatory patients out, uh, dialysis-dependent in particular, uh, on a couple of National Guard trucks that were able to get out of the hospital. They'd been sheltering there, some of the National Guard folks, uh, but get out before the waters got too high. But at this meeting, they also made a choice about a group of patients that they would designate to go last, and they chose patients who were either you know terribly ill or had DNR orders, do not resuscitate orders. And to the doctors, this just seemed logical, and I I asked them what the reasons were, and one of them said, well, you know, we figured a patient, DNR, do not resuscitate, uh, simply obviously means don't restart my heart if it stops, don't put me on a ventilator perhaps if I stop breathing. In this case, they said, well, if the patients didn't want extraordinary means to prolong their lives, Uh, They extrapolated that to mean they wouldn't want to be saved at the expense of others. But, of course, there's nothing in the actual DNR orders that states this.
0: And at some point, someone made a decision to give morphine and midazolam to the patients.
1: So this was uh, a day later. And so what happened was that, indeed, the power did fail. So we had storm early Monday morning, waters rising early Tuesday morning, early hours of Wednesday morning, maybe 2 a.m., the last backup generator failed. So then just imagine that situation. Uh, they also did not prioritize those life care patients we talked about, the long term acute care patients, the ventilator patients. They were not prioritized in the early evacuation. They were all still there when the power failed. And then you had just this real crisis starting early Wednesday morning. At that time, also although there had been fairly regular helicopter rescues early on. uh, At some point, those had been called off for the night. The the staff needed to rest. They felt it was dangerous to be up on the poorly lit helipod late at night. So they had called off the rescues, and then they didn't really start up very much on Wednesday. And you just imagine this other form of triage that's happening for the entire city. So you're a pilot for the Coast Guard, and you see people waving rags off of rooftops. You don't know if they have any water. You figure at least the hospital has water and food and medicines, which this hospital did, and and plenty of caregivers. So there was some prioritizing of people who were desperate to, uh, you know, stuck on their rooftops with, with many feet of water around them. So the, the evacuation really slowed on that Wednesday, and these desperately ill patients became even sicker. Everyone had been pretty much moved out of their rooms, or or most of the patients. They were not really getting much uh, of what we would call medical care. It was just this, you know, inspiring human tableau of nurses waving cardboard over patients' faces, giving sips of water, working in this desperate heat. Um, Really heroic work, but not a lot of medical care going on. Patients were getting medicines for comfort as needed. The pharmacy was still working, but, you know, kind of curative care or diagnostics, just very little of that was being done. And so patients, some patients began to die and there became this real sense of of desperation amongst the staff, this sense that they couldn't help the patients that they were normally used to being able to help. There were also crazy rumors of what was happening in the city. People could hear gunshots. They might have been gunshots trying to alert rescuers, other desperate people around the hospital, but people interpreted that to mean that the hospital was about to be overtaken. I mean, literally, some people believe this by um, people who were drug dependent, who who were needing a fix, and, and they were afraid they would just Somehow get to the hospital over the floodwaters and ransack it and kill people. So there was this became this desperation to get out. Oh, I should add with the animals. People were afraid. How can we get the animals out of here? You know, when staff was going out by boat, wonderful volunteers. This creative thinking is really what saves lives in an emergency. Volunteers from Louisiana swamplands had brought their swamp boats talked their way through checkpoints on the way to the city, launched those boats, and started taking people out, all these visitors and staff members who weren't needed, by boat to about nine blocks away where there was dry ground. So they weren't allowed to bring their animals with them, thinking, you know, we've got to get all the people out. People began to euthanize the animals. And then somebody raised this question, what about putting some of these patients out of their misery? And, and so, again, I'd just really like the listeners to think, you know, what do you think about this at this moment and this question?
0: It's an amazing thing is, is what would you do if you thought that you were taking care of people who were dying on their own anyway and and you had to make that decision for your own safety and there's gunfire and you're kind of worried that the hospital is going to be overrun. There's water surrounding the hospital and it's, you know, it's 108 degrees and you haven't slept for three or four days.
1: That's exactly what they were weighing. And I'll tell you, there was not unanimity amongst the staff when these questions and expressed euphemistically sometimes started to roll around the hospital building. So some people said, absolutely, this is what we should do. We should hasten the deaths of these patients because they're going to die anyways and we need to get out and, uh, you know, this is just the right thing to do. Others absolutely disagreed, but uh, after the hospital was fully evacuated by by the next day uh, and after. Disaster mortuary teams came. They found uh, 45 bodies in this hospital, which was a large number more than in any comparably situated hospital in the in the drowned city. And it ultimately was the case that 20 patients had been injected with morphine or Versed or both, and in this short time period on that Thursday, September 1st, 2000. And died, and it turned out they weren't all patients teetering on the edge of life. In fact, one of them was a 61-year-old man, Emmett Everett, who uh, was on that seventh floor in Life Care, had multiple medical problems, but uh, was and serious ones, but he was conscious. He had fed himself breakfast that morning and asked his nurses, "Are we ready to rock and roll?" And so he, however, was partially paralyzed, and he weighed about 400 pounds, if I remember correctly. And according to people who participated in a discussion about him, they felt that in the hospital with no elevators, a man on the seventh floor of this type, that there was no hope of getting him all the way down the stairs through a a hole in the machine room wall into a a parking garage where the patients were driven to the top of the garage then carried up these rickety flights of stairs to the helipad for rescue. And they felt they just, you know, this happens in a disaster sometimes. You just, you get blinkers on and you cannot see what the possibilities might be. And at that moment, it just, maybe they hadn't slept in days. They just felt that there was no way to rescue him. And he was one of the patients who received these drugs and died on that Thursday
0: so i don't want to kind of spoil the the ending of your book for the for the listeners but it is an amazing read to kind of find out what happened with regard to charges and prosecution and kind of follow-up and it's an amazing ethical lesson for anyone who's ever taken care of patients anyone who's been a patient and what would you do if kind of faced with that dilemma so i want to thank you dr fink for being on the show five days of memorial is an amazing read and thank you so much
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This is Dr. John Russell. You've been listening to ReachMD Book Club. To download this program or others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. Thanks again for listening.